welcome everybody. Let's get started while the last persons are looking for a seat. It's a great pleasure and a privilege to introduce my friend and colleague John Morrill. It's surely no exaggeration to say that John is one of the greatest philosophers of science alive. He has made significant contribution to almost all fields within philosophy of science, but among those contributions, his writings in two particular areas stand out. The first is scientific revolutions and scientific realism. So he is the progenitor of the position known as scientific realism, which is one of the most talked about and hotly debated um, questions in uh, the scientific realism debate. And more recently, he has made important contributions to our understanding of clinical trials in uh, the biological science and in medicine. So it's a great pleasure to welcome John here. Thank you so much for being here. The format of the lecture is John will talk for about 40 minutes and then you have um, the rest of the hour for your questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. uh, Too too, too kind. It's a great pleasure to be here uh, at the LSE, which I never visit. Um, I've only been here 50 years. That's, uh, <laughs> one of these days I've got to go somewhere else. Um, yeah, and thank you very much to the Literary Festival for, in, for the invitation and to, to the Centre for Philosophy Natural Science, uh, the director of whom is Roman, uh, for uh, co-hosting it. Uh, and thank you very much for coming. Let's see if this works. Oh, there we go. Okay, so... Um, let me start with a little bit of not exactly psycho babble, but psycho speculation. Maybe it's because most of us, at least, but sadly not everybody has a wonderful childhood, but most of us at least have a sort of deep unconscious memory of how wonderful it was when our mothers made us feel the centre of the universe. But there is this pretty persistent trend in the history of thought to try to put humans in some sort of starry position within the universe. It's to be a bit excessively egomaniacal to think that you personally were the centre of the universe, but sort of transferred to mankind as a whole. And, uh, and we'll see some of this as we go along. Uh, back in the Middle Ages, back in ancient times, in the Middle Ages, uh, it was, that was a, reasonable view, it was a reasonable view to have, that man had a special role. Indeed, man was completely central, just in the physical sense, because the only... Uh, shot that we had at the scientific cosmology then was due to this guy, or somebody who probably didn't look anything like this. Uh, but how do we know that these representations are real? Uh, Romans could have that sort of thing, I don't know. Anyway, this is probably a bit more like, more like Aristotle. Oh, oh why? Um, <laughs> and this should act as a reminder that really, you know, even from the beginning, we shouldn't think humans as too special unless we mean especially stupid and especially obnoxious, uh, some of the time, at any rate. Anyway, in the, this is a, a cross-section of the Aristotelian universe. The cosmology was, was taken as the scientifically best-supported account. And as you see, the earth, at least if you read French, the, the Earth is at the centre, uh, right at the centre, fixed. It contains Earth, so there's no question of it's moving, because the natural place of earthly bodies is at the centre of the, of the, of the universe. So, got no reason to move. And all the other bodies move around it 
So uh, above our heads, the delight is on cold, star, starry nights, including the stars themselves, which are at the end. Which are, uh, Aristotle's believed that everything was held, a theory that said that everything was contained within this outer sphere, the sphere of fixed stars. All the fixed stars, because they're fixed relative to one another, they move 50 degrees per hour altogether, though, as if they were stuck on a crampon record. Uh, they're all stuck in, stuck in there. What is their outside of there? Well, the outside of the sphere of fixed stars, the answer is nothing. <coughs> Literally nothing, not the void. Aristotle believed he'd a priori proved that there was no such thing as a void. It's always a mistake to think he proved anything a priori. Uh, but there's definitely no void, there's just nothing. So the answer to the old conundrum in the Aristotelian universe, what happens if you get to the edge of the universe and stick your sword through it, is there's nowhere for it to go. What's the problem? You can't go. There's nothing there. It's not, literally nothing, not the void, which is not too dissimilar to our current belief about the beginning of the universe, which is uh, expected its respect to time rather than space, that uh, time itself began with a big bang. And well, there must have been an instant before. No, there wasn't, because time began with the big bang. Matter starts with this, is the answer to it. Okay, well then, along comes a guy who probably didn't look much like this either, uh, called Copernicus, uh, to cause uh, some havoc that we're going to be talking about. Uh, and he did it via this book, the De Revolutionibus Orbium uh, Celestium, which famously published on his deathbed in 15, or close to his deathbed in 1543. Uh, he's known very often as the timid canon because he was so worried about what the impact of his view that the Earth was not the centre of the system, contrary to what some very fragmented bits of the scriptures say, actually. Uh, but it was the sun that was the centre of the universe, and the Earth moves around it. He was worried about what the impact of this would have, uh, especially in terms of uh, com conflict with, with the Roman Catholic and, indeed, the Protestant churches. Uh, and he was quite right to be worried about that. So this is the Copernican system. At least it's one shot of it again. So now... It's the sun that's at the centre of, of everything. He retains the... That's why this is inaccurate. These spots being at different distances. Wrong as a representation of what Copernicus believed, he took over from Aristotle the idea that the, that the uh, terrestrial, the celestial sphere, I beg your pardon, had all the fixed stars fixed in it. Uh, but now it's the, it's the Earth... That's, uh, sorry, it's the sun that's at the centre of, of the system. The Earth goes around, of course, it, the... Uh, moon goes around it, in turn the, the Earth, and all the other, all the other, uh, Mercury and Venus are inferior planets, they're nearer to the sun than we are the rest of the planets further away, and then, as I say, we've got the same celestial sphere with all the fixed stars on it. Okay, after, so, so all, all, as people say, it used to be a nice universe for humans, we, we were there, it's stuck. It, uh, at the very centre of it, and after all, it's pretty obvious, isn't it, that we rule the earth? All these pesky animals are nothing really. Uh, we rule the earth, the earth is at the centre of everything. Uh, we're really pretty hot shot people, hot shot things, we're, we're at the centre of everything. But now, all of a sudden, we're sent, as people put it, uh, poetically hurtling and spinning, because not, not, not only does Copernicus, of course, attribute this. Uh, orbital motion of, of the Earth around the Sun. He also, in order to explain day and night and so on, he, he has the, the, the Earth itself revolving about its own axis. So we're hurtling and spinning uh, in this uh, so solar system where nowhere special, 
we've lost our special place, and things after Copernicus, of course, got worse for the anthropocentrically inclined. This is a shot of the Milky Way, of course, which contains the stars in our, in our galaxy. Uh, as you find, if we look at where the sun is, even in our own galaxy, this doesn't look very... I hope you can see it. Maybe we could take these lights down a little bit. So, anyway, here we are, not even at the centre of the galaxy, let alone the centre of the universe. And anyway, it wouldn't do as much good if we were, because uh, not only are there many, many stars in the in our galaxy, there are many, many other galaxies as well, as was discovered by science late after Copernicus. So, it, as you'll find if you go on the uh, Hubble Space Laboratory website, uh, they say that counting stars and counting galaxies is a bit like counting grains of sand. It's not supposed to be completely accurate, but they reckon something like 10 to the 11 to 10 to the 12 stars uh, in our galaxy, in the Milky Way, so there's nothing special even about the sun, and we're not specially positioned with respect to the sun. And the 10 to 11 to 10 to the 12 other galaxies, aside from the aside from ours. Uh, so assuming that they each of those other galaxies has roughly the same number of stars, there are around 10 to the 22 to 10 to the 24 other stars in the universe, of which our sun just happens to be one completely insignificant one. Remember. That's what 10 to the 24 looks like. Uh, and 1 followed by 24 zeros. It's looks more impressive when you write all the zeros. So that's an awful lot of stars. Just one of them. And in fact, there's nothing really special even within this about our star. Our sun's just a regular so-called main sequence star currently 7 billion years old. Uh, in about 3 billion more years, it will transform into a red giant, uh, which will mean that its atmosphere will stretch out to the Earth which will mean that life as we know it on Earth is impossible. So you better get a move on. I don't think you want to spend much of the rest of the time we've got till life becomes impossible listening to me. But anyway, we've got enough time, as Robin was saying. We've still got three billion years, but not a lot in the grand scheme of things. In a couple of billion years more after that, the sun will have burned out totally. So we better have learned how to get the hell out of here by then if we're going to survive as humans. Uh, and getting out of here doesn't just mean getting to another planet within the solar system, it means getting somewhere completely different where the sun, where the relative star, the star that we're going to attach ourselves to is, is younger than the sun. Well, also, I, he I, hate to, I hesitate to talk about this because Roman's a big expert on thermodynamics, but at least according to Stan, it's worse than that, in a way, for the anthropocentric kind, for the people who want, by science, to see humans as, as special. So we're not special certainly in astronomical terms, and we, we know that the sun will eventually burn out, but at least according to those standard models of thermodynamics, there's always a little bit of flexibility in theories and in science if you look at them very closely, but the standard prediction is that there will eventually be a heat death of the whole universe, that not just our part of it, but the whole universe will be transformed into unusable uniform heat. So even if we got it out, uh, it's not going to do as much good uh, in the longer term. Keynes didn't know how right he was when he said, in the long term, we're all dead. So, and also, uh, uh, accepted theories of, uh, of currently best theory, of, of cosmological theory, the Big Bang, again, on, on its motion natural interpretation, uh, involves uh, eventually the universe stopping expanding and going back into, a, in, into the singularity from which it 
for which it initially emerged in the Big Bang into a big, big crunch, at which point there won't be going to be any time, there certainly won't be any people, there won't be any matter. It may be that the universe is going to concertina out between successive Big Bangs and Big Crunches, but when, when, we, when we get back out again, it won't be with humans in tow, we'll be back to, to square one, which was a long time ago. Well, you might say, at least there's biology. We're looking for scientific reasons for, to, to uh, think that humans are special. Well, it doesn't look too hot from physics, post-Copernicus. But at least there's biology. Surely we are somehow kings of the, our local bit of the region, at least. There's something special about humans. And maybe even, this is a very small, I'm sorry, this is William Paley, the author of uh, famous... Uh, what uh, argument for design basically said, look, if you, if you came across, if you were wandering through the woods and you came across a watch, you would immediately infer that that watch was, because of the way that its parts are interrelated, you would immediately infer that that had been created, that had been created by a creator uh, rather than have got there by physical, on the basis of physical principles, <coughs> on the basis of physical causes. Uh, I don't know, if I've never seen a watch before, I don't know what I'd think if I saw it in the, in the, uh, in, in the woods, actually. Uh, it's only because you've seen watches before and you know they were made by a watchmaker, and that sounds plausible. Anyway, he goes on to say, how much more amazing, if you, if you look at a human eye or humans, that the way that their uh, parts are interrelated, surely that speaks of a creator who had a very, then, a very special soft spot for us in that he's created us particularly well. Uh, compared to other uh, animals, which of course it's also false. Okay, well, so biology, biology did continue to provide solace for the anthropocentric incline into the 19th century. We've even got this argument from design that sees a special, special product of a benevolent uh, god. But then along come this, came this man, this is a shot of Darwin, uh, roughly the time he was writing Origin of the Species. And really messed things up again. So biology was no longer the source of anything uh, that made us special in the universe. So not only does Darwin show that design and chance are not the only explanations for adaptiveness, for the way that things uh, in the biological realm interrelate, the, the way that the human eye works so wonderfully well to enhance the, uh, the life of humans... Not only the, there's another explanation, namely millions and millions of chance events, random mutations that are then selected for on the basis of their fitness by the process of natural selection. And still worse, at least in most people's uh, estimation, uh, showing that we are, in this, uh, as people said, in, of course, completely unscientifically, uh, descended from the apes, uh, this famous cartoon of Darwin later on when he had a beard, uh, of course, it, it, that's not what the Darwinian theory of evolution says, but it does say that, we're, that we are uh, descend, we have common ancestors with the, with the apes, which, and indeed with everything else. We've evolved essentially from the primeval slime, so what's so special about us? So, net outcome. Not only do we occupy an insignificant part of the universe, we aren't even the centre of the local bit, which in turn is not the centre at all of the next local bit, our galaxy, which in turn has no special place in the whole set of galaxies, of which there are so many, that, as I've already noted. Not only have we been around for an entirely insignificant amount of time, uh, the universe began with the Big Bang, accepted theories that we had 13.8 billion years ago, 
Uh, Earth came into existence only 4.6 billion years ago. And it's taken time to develop. First life is estimated on Earth is estimated, of course, we don't know where else in the universe. Uh, but first life on Earth is estimated to be 3.8 billion years ago. Uh, Homo sapiens emerged only 200,000 years ago. So it really is, as people say, the bat of an eyelid in, in the whole time that the universe has existed, where humans have been around. So there's no special place, there's no special time. Uh, we Not only all that, we've got ancestors in common with the apes, yuck. Not at all, of course. My, uh, we might obviously, Darwinian theory opens up the possibility of our evolving into an entirely different species, especially if, uh, if there is a major environmental change that makes us unfitted for the... Or we get wiped out together, altogether more likely, of course, by the day, the more days that Trump has the uh, nuclear codes to his... Uh, at his side. And in any event, we've only got a few billion years until the sun gives out, and a finite time after that, however big it is, according to thermodynamics, until the whole universe goes. So the whole universe is destined to end. I mean, how special can you get? Really, not very special at all, it seems. Okay, and yet, so now I want to turn positive, because I'm just a positive soul of any. Uh, <laughs> Sort of. There's a fundamental paradox here because we, we've been able, we are special in the sense that we've been able to discover how insignificant we are. And that's the sort of paradox that I'm going to be uh, leaving you with. We've been able to discover it through science. Now, of course, we're not special in learning about the world. All animals learn about the world, and there's a massive increase in very interesting results. It's not just apes, not just the primates that, 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 that can learn that, of course, we knew long ago that bees could respond to the evidence from their mates dancing in a certain way to, to work out where it was that they should go to get the nectar. Uh, there's been very interesting work on birds. I mean, it's incredible what crows can do. Uh, and also, I was learning yesterday, octopuses are really quite smart and have a quite developed uh, society. But it does seem that all the other animals, what they can learn about is all directly relevant to their survival, to getting food on the table. All the animals have tables. Uh, uh, and, and reproductive success. But, you know, it's not going to affect your reproductive success, I have to tell you, if you believe that the Earth circles around the Earth, around the Sun, rather than, rather than the other way around. It's not going to affect the way that you... Uh, the, how much food you've got if you believe that we've evolved from the primeval slime and our ancestors in common with in fact, all other species that are around. Uh, so it does seem that we're unique in being able to learn about stuff that's about the fundamental structure of the universe but not of no relevance to, to or no direct relevance at any rate to, um, to our biological fitness and that does seem to mark us out so what I'm going to do for the last 10 minutes or so of the talk I'm aiming to finish before the 14th is to do a little bit of philosophy science by asking uh, how we got to discover lots of stuff about the underlying structure of the universe about the deep structure of the universe that uh, isn't directly relevant to our immediate well, well-being. Now, discover here, of course, you have to take in a little, little lighter sense. We, we, we all know that Sir Karl Popper was right, that we never prove our theories, we never know for certain, we don't really discover things about the deep structure of the universe, we postulate theories about the deep structure of the universe, but it's very important that Popper doesn't, denies it too strongly, in my view. We do get confirmed theories, very strongly confirmed theories by the evidence. So we sort of sort of discover 
uh, things in the sense that we, we have very well confirmed theories that tell us what the underlying structure of the universe will, uh, will, is like. So how do we get to discover all that stuff? Well, essentially by, by following the evidence and following the evidence in a, in a qualitatively different way than, uh, than animals do, I think, than other animals. Sorry, God, that's a terrible mistake. Of course, we're animals, so why would I contrast humans with animals? Other animals. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, I want to give you... Sorry, he comes up a little too soon in this terribly bad with, uh, uh, with, with anything technical, really. Anyway, uh, it, as I've said, it, it's a widespread view that science, in science we prove theories. I'm going to go back to the Copernican Revolution, really, and ask what it was that made, us, made science change its collective mind from an Earth-centred to a Sun-centred uh, cosmology. Uh, well, you might think that some evidence came up that proved that the Earth moves around the Sun. Uh, but we know that, if we think about it for a minute, theories are universal in scope. They tell us things about, uh, about the underlying structure, which by definition is not observable. So you aren't going to prove, at least not in any deductive sense, that theories are true. Maybe, especially if, you've, if you're an LSE person and not about Popper, not LSE people do, of course. This is Sir Cole Popper in, in his 60s, roughly, when I first sat in his, I never sat at his feet, uh, sat at his, uh, in his lectures uh, in 1965, first of all, I think it was. Um, that maybe something disproved. Okay, we used to believe we had a certain amount of evidence, it, it was consistent with the Earth being fixed at the centre, but then some, some observation came along that, that refuted the idea. That's Popper's picture of how science progresses. You've got a theory that works for a while, but then it gets refuted by some empirical evidence, and if it leaves its com competitor, in this case Copernicus, unrefuted, that's a very good reason to think that the unrefuted theory is a better description of how things are. Well, no, that doesn't, that's not the way it works either, in, if we look at it. It's, very, it's provable, in fact, that all the evidence, all the astronomical evidence that they had at the time is compatible with, with both theories. Uh, so what was it that made people uh, change their mind? Well, I think despite the fact that all the evidence was, was compatible with both theories, there were three pieces of evidence in particular that were rightly, I think, taken to indicate that the Ptolemaic theory was false and that the Copernican theory was at least more true than the, Ptolem than the, uh, uh, than the Ptolemaic one. And, and then the three uh, phenomena are order of the planets which is complicated. I won't have time to, to explain that to you in, the, in, in this lecture, uh, but in some ways it's the most powerful. Uh, planetary stations and retrogressions and uh, bounded elongation of Mercury and Venus. Okay, so what's going on with these? With these? Let's start with the planetary stations and retrogressions. Um, so if we think about how the planets move, the planets, uh, planet comes from the Greek for wander, wanderer, uh, they're, the, they're the spot. I mean, in, in observational terms, they're the spots of light that move relative to the fixed stars. They're standardly mistaken for a fixed star until you see that if you plot it, uh, its position uh, day by day, it's eventually moving against the pattern of the fixed stars. Because remember, the fixed stars are not fixed; they're moving, but they're all they're all moving in a way that keeps their distances fixed. They move as if they're on one uh, LP. People know about now. Vinyl's back. It's great. Uh, 
so uh, the planet, so they move uh, westward, a westward diurnal rotation with the fixed stars. The okay, fixed stars are moving 15 degrees an hour. And the planets move uh, uh, with that same uh, diurnal motion, but with a super, superimposed eastward motion on top of that. And in fact, if you plot their motion against the background of the fixed stars, then most of the time the planets are going westward with the stars. But every so often they start to slow and then briefly move eastwards against the motion of the fixed stars. So they move backwards. Now, of course, you don't see them moving backwards. Uh, that, that phenomenon of gradually slowing, because they don't slow to a complete halt, it's a continuous motion. Uh, but slowing, going through stationary instantaneously and then retrogressing, that's called stations, the phenomenon of stations and retrogressions, and all planets exhibited. So this is a picture of Mars retrogressing in Aries and Taurus. Uh, so it's not that you see this. It's not that you see the the the, the, uh, the planet moving that way over any given period of time. Because remember, there's a uh, there's another there's a westward motion superimposed on all this. The whole the whole diagram is moving westwards. It's the usual analogy is think of a, a toll collector on a on a merry-go-round who's walking backwards against the or has its his own proper motion on top of the motion or back, backwards against usually the, the motion of the, uh, the merry-go-round. So the merry-go-round is the fixed stars, the, the planet's got its own motion, but you know, the, the motion of the, the actual motion observed from the Earth of the uh, toll collector is always a combination of the two. You've got to subtract, if you like, the, the westward motion to see that that's what's happening with the planetary station and retrogression. Okay, so how does, how does Ptolemy explain this? Well, by the famous uh, epicycles, which are come to be synonymous with ad hoc, I'm not sure that's entirely fair. Uh, basically he says, okay, well, you know, it would be nice and simple if my view were, this is Ptolemy, developing the Aristotelian viewpoint of the Earth fixed at the centre. It would be nice and simple if the, if the planet just went round in a circle around the Earth, but it's not quite as simple as that. What, what, and, and we know that it's not quite as simple as that from planets of stations and retrogression. What's actually happening is that the planet is fixed not on what's called a deferent, but on an epicycle that, go, that itself is going around a, 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 a point on, on the deferent. You may have, those of you who are sort of my age, may have played something called Spirograph. I don't know if it's still around, but as kids, we used to go for Christmas. It's sort of roughly, well, it's, you remember all those wonderful, you can, you can produce anything. In fact, Fourier analysis tells you literally any. With an, with, a, with an infinite combination of circles, you can, you can create any uh, mathematical curve that you like. Anyway, he, does the, he puts it on an epicycle. Uh, he puts the planet, Ptolemy, that is, on, on an epicycle, which is moving around the deferent. The deferent's also moving. And you can see, this is the sort of ultimately boring spirograph, but you've only got one extra, th- one epicycle, so to speak. This is, this is the motion that you've got to get. Uh, now, of course... The, it's theory that allows us to stand outside the plane of this diagram. We are actually in the plane of the diagram observing, and well, this is what we'll see uh, if we think if thinking through according to this uh, to- uh, deferent epicycle construction. We'll see exactly the retrogression, station and retrogression that uh, that we know from observation occurs. So you could certainly fix it, but in order to get it right, you've got to fix the. Uh, the value of the deferent, the deferent velocity and the, the uh, value of the epicyclic velocity just so that it gives you exactly what you want. 
namely the, observa the already observed results. Okay, maybe I shouldn't do that. It's already very, this is terra incognita for me trying to go onto some uh, website. Let me not do that. The time you've got it, it might be, probably almost work. Uh, on the other hand, so this is, this is like old-fashioned stuff. Um, you, there are a lot, you should, you can have fun. You know, there are lots of simulators at, on, online of, of Ptolemaic accounts and Copernican accounts of just exactly this phenomenon. Basically, what the, what the Copernican account says is, look, you don't need any epicycles, you don't need any extra assumptions. It's inevitable that people can get stations and retrogressions if you just take into account the fact that the Earth is itself a moving observatory. You're on the Earth and you're making observations on a moving Earth. So if this is the picture, this is the Sun now, this is the, top, this is the Copernican theory. We're on the Earth, here's a superior planet, one that's further away from the Sun, Basically, so it, it, it's moving around its circle, the, pla the planet's moving around its circle, there's only circles, there's no epicycles necessary at all, at least for the qualitative phenomenon. So here's, here's the Earth at E1, I mean, remember, basically observing it means basically pointing a stick at it, you're looking at what angle it makes with, with, where, with the ground, right, at any given time, what direction you have to point a stick in to, for, so that the stick is pointing towards the, the star. Okay, well, if you're here, and, 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 or this planet, rather, if the planet's here, then you'll see it. You, you don't see it directly. You see it against the background of the sphere of the fixed stars. That's what the background's formed by. So you see it at one there. When you're at two, you'll see it's moving uh, with the fixed stars at this point from one to two. However, between E3 and E5 is exactly when it starts to go backwards because nothing's happening. It's not moving backwards. It's just moving at its own steady rate. So are you... But at three, it will be pointing there, so it's still going forward, so to speak, westward with the fixed stars. But at four, it's now moved back. But basically, just as a result of the of, of the orbitation, exactly as if you you had two concentric tracks, uh, motorcycle motor car tracks, and two different cars. If you're on the if you're on the inside track, then as the as the car on the other track, most of the time the car will look as if it's going the same direction as you, assuming it is going the same direction as you. But when you overtake it, it will momentarily stop, just as you're overtaking, and then look for a time to move backwards, and then when you're far enough away, it will start moving forward again. And this is the same, uh, this is an account for so-called inferior planets. Uh, they're, they're not so-called, the inferior planets, the ones that are closer to the sun than the Earth is. You get an analogous but slightly different uh, explanation. Okay, well, bounded elongation, well, how does that go? That was the other phenomenon I wanted to talk about briefly. Okay, so most of the star, most of the planets, most of the planets can be anywhere in the sky relative to where the sun is. Uh, how do we know where the sun is when the sun's, how do we know where the planet is relative to the sun when we never see the sun and the planet at the same time except when there's a total eclipse of the sun? The answer is you can work out with the, the sun mimics successive uh, fixed stars, and you work out which one it is by waiting for sunset, noting where the sunset is, taking the time, moving your diurnal rotation back by the appropriate amount, so if it's 15 minutes, that is until you can see the stars, say it's half an hour, then that's seven, you move your map seven and a half degrees back, that's the fixed star that the sun was coincident with for that day. So you can work out where the planet is relative to the, to the sun. They both go around what's called the ecliptic, the apparent path of the sun. The planets sort of wander a bit around, so 
quite a narrow band called the zodiac, but they, they all they could be anywhere. So they could be in conjunction. They could be at the same point. The sun and the earth and the planet could be in put, you put in the same direction. They could be 180 degrees apart. That's all the planets except for Mercury and Venus. Mercury and Venus are tied to the sun in the sense that they never get very far away from the sun. They just go backwards and forwards uh, across the disk of the sun. That's why they're both evening stars, morning stars. Sometimes they appear shortly after the sun has set, because they're close to the sun. Sometimes they appear just before the sun rises. So uh, Venus is never more than 45 degrees away, and Mercury is never more than 22 degrees away from the sun, that is. Why should that be? Well, here are the two explanations, again in the form of a diagram, pictures worth a thousand words and all that. Okay, so uh, Ptolemy, what does Ptolemy do? Well, again, we've got a, uh, an epicycle as well as, a, as the deferent. But just to do it very quickly, what, what Ptolemy has to do, in order to, the, 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 this has got to be a, uh, this, the angle that the uh, direction of the planet, the apparent direction of the planet makes with the apparent direction of the sun has always got to be uh, within a certain limit. Okay? With 22 degrees in the case of Mercury, 45 in the case of, of Venus. So what, what, uh, what Ptolemy assumes, completely ad hoc, just like the ad hoc epicycles before, is that this line, the, the line connecting the Earth, the centre of the, of the epicycle of the planet and the Sun, always stays fixed. So th this is like a fixed arm that these various rotations are going around. So this goes round with, this goes round with it uh, the whole time. So the, 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 amount, the maximum amount of elongation is given exactly by this angle. But you can see, this, it can't be, if, this is, if, this is fit, if that point and that point and that point are collinear, then the maximum uh, distance away from the sun that can be is, is when the planet's there or there, i.e. when the, the line from eta p is tangent to that, to that epicycle. So in effect, the bounded elongation measures the size of the epicycle, but only relative to this assumption that you just have to bring in completely ad hoc that, uh, that this, this is collinear, uh, only for those two planets, not for all planets. So it's a, it's a, it's a much more ad hoc, ad hoc feature of Ptolemy than, it, than is the general sort of epicyclic construction. On the other hand, you can see if you think through this picture, there's nothing fancy again, there's no epicycles. The sun, here's the sun, here's the planet, because it's an inferior planet, and that's not an assumption that, that Copernicus makes, actually. Uh, he's forced, because of the period between uh, planetary stations and retrogressions, it's not just an arbitrary decision, because Venus, Mercury, and the Earth and the, uh, uh, and the Sun, judged from the Earth, all have the same average orbital period. So if you just go on, the, 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 the larger the orbital period, the larger the, uh, the, larger the orbit, which seems like a reasonable assumption, you, wouldn't, you couldn't decide between those three. And, 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 uh, but for, for Copernicus, it's absolutely dictated that these, that's, that Mercury and Venus, because of their behaviour, must be inferior, so they've got to be within, within the orbit of the Earth, on the, on the Copernican account. And now you can see, they're both just going along completely independently. There's nothing, uh, nothing like an, uh, uh, an ad hoc assumption tying any lines or anything else. The, the planet goes round the Sun, the Earth goes round the Sun, but you can see that they're never... Now, the, basically, the, the, max, the angle of bounded elo, the maximum... Uh, the elongation is being measured by 
is a measure of the size of the uh, inferior planet's orbit relative to the size of the, of the Earth. And we, all, we know for other reasons it's going to be inf in inferior. So, surprisingly, if you like, uh, the, it, it, the lesson when you think about evidence and theory in science is not just, it's not just a question of the theory being able to entail the evidence, being able to accommodate the evidence, it's the way that it does. Okay? I think both of these phenomena give very strong reasons for preferring Copernicus, because both of them, for both of them, you have to write in the phenomenon within, within Ptolemy. You have to make special assumptions. You would never make those special assumptions unless you already knew about that phenomenon. Uh, whereas in Copernicus, they drop straight out. You can't but see planetary stations or retrogressions. There's no way, because you're moving around. So sometimes you overtake the planet or you get overtaken by it, depending on whether it's an inferior or exterior. But again, if, if uh, Mercury is an inferior planet, it's bound to exhibit bounded elongation. There's nothing. This, this you would have to know that bounded elongation occurred in order to fix this, 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 this line. So that's what it's surprisingly, right? that's what it's about. Uh, that's what about theory and evidence is about. It's exactly what Lakatos uh, said on the basis of Duen. Uh, let me just finish with one, uh, one an, an indication. I'm not going to talk about obviously about theory and evidence in the in the evolutionary debate in, the, in Darwin, but much the same is true. Uh, I mean, you might think that. Uh, so let's say we're comparing uh, Darwin with. What was at least in terms of numbers, its it, uh, its main supporters, that is, its main competitor, namely, it's now called New Earth Creationism. The, the, the basically the universe was created by some supernatural being in roughly 4004 BC, with this, it, its constituents roughly as they are now. There's been a certain amount of change, but certainly nothing on the scale that Darwinian theory suggests. Uh, so nothing's more than six, roughly 6,000 years old is what that theory entails. Now you think, oh, if anything's going to be uh, subject to a Papirian falsification, that's it, because there's tons of things that we know to be much more than 6,000 years old. We can carbon date things, we can look at the fossil record, but lots of things, this is ridiculous theory, must be getting knocked out, but the, the, it's always the case that when you look at what we call in fossil science the Duen problem, Rears its ugly head, and you can always accommodate the theory with it. You can always accommodate the data within the theory. It's a question of how you accommodate it. So here's one of my favourite whipping boys. This is called this is a guy called Philip Boss, and he showed you how to do it. And once you've seen it, it's obvious how that is how to reconcile the idea of a only six thousand year old universe with all these observations. He wrote a book called Omphalos. Omphalos. Uh, which I don't particularly recommend. I've never got beyond about page five. <laughs> but uh, but I don't know, does anybody speak Greek? Anybody know independently what omphalos means? Means navel. Very good. This man, this is, if, you're, if you live in Belgium, you've got to learn lots of languages, right? Because there are almost no Belgians. So, it wasn't me. Oh, wasn't no, it? I can't take your credit. Oh. Uh, <laughs> ah, okay. You look, you look, ah. But she's Belgian too. Oh, right. <laughs> 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 no, on course, it's right. It's, it's naval, yeah. So this this book, which is about 250 pages, is on the thorny issue of why Adam had a navel. Uh, now, he spent, as far as I can see, very little time talking about Eve, which again reflects sexism at the time, but I assume he would also have been interested in why 
uh, by uh, Eva the navel, given the way that they were crazy, right? You're crazy out of the rib. What are you, what are you doing with the navel? Now, it's not at all clear <coughs> how he thought he knew that Adam and subsidiarily Eve had navels. I don't see anything in Genesis, not that I read Genesis very often, but I, I don't see anything in there that, that really says, you know, there's a, a minute anatomical description of Adam and specifying that there was a navel there. But he takes himself as having done that. Uh, and after about 200 pages, he says, well, this isn't such a mystery. God can do what he likes. So he created Adam with a navel, even though this is not the mark of the way that, it, that he was born. And he says, it's exactly the same with the fossils. And all the other things that look old. Of course, they all look much older than 6,000 years. But they were created as if they looked at the very beginning, in 4004 BC, God created them. Why should we do? He moves in mysterious ways. Uh, create things as if they were massively old already. And that's how you reconcile it. You can see it's an absolute classic ad hoc manoeuvre, even more apparent than those on the But it's the same sort of idea. Okay, so I've already gone 40 minutes. Okay, so take our message conundrum. It's the fact that we've been able to discover how significant we are that makes us special. Because we've discovered things about the universe that tell us that we're incredibly significant within it. But it's an amazing achievement that we've been able to do that. So thanks for listening. Thank you very much, John. So I can now start questioning our insignificance. <laughs> Thanks very much. Mm -hmm. It was you, yeah. No, no, no it's you, yeah. Keep noting as Ah, okay. Uh, thanks very much. Um, it seems to beg the obvious question of if our intelligence and ability to realize that we're not so special marks us out, how soon is it that our unique intelligence fails to mark us out because we discover that either, well, perhaps if we create machines that keeps us being special or dolphins are intelligent or aliens are or something like that? Yeah, yeah, indeed. I mean, I'm talking about special within... The local universe, who knows what, uh, and, and at present, uh, it's, it may be a transient phenomenon, yeah. And we've got a pretty good start, but, and we don't know. Obviously, there's 10 to the 24 other galaxies and 10 to the 24 stars in our galaxy. Who, who knows how many of those are hospitable to, to uh, life as we know it, and maybe there's more different kinds of life apart from the one that we know it. Yeah, I'm only talking special sub the here and now the local universe and locally at this time. But you're quite right, yeah. Luke? So, so I'm wondering, you know, if you think of evolutionary theory and there's all kinds of features popping up, you know, birds are flying and this mm -hmm. and that, right? Now, is it the case that it's quite common in the animal world that certain features are being created which then have all kinds of side effects and they can do all kinds of other things with it that sure. have nothing to do with, with, with procreation or getting food on the table. Mm. Because if that's the case, then, well, you know, that feature of intelligence just happens to be just like these other ones. Yeah, yeah, I'm not saying it's supernatural. I mean, I only, I, I'm using special in a... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's how, after all, you explain things that creationists will tell you are completely inexplicable, namely, what's, good, you know, what's the good of half a wing? Well, the answer is half as good as a wing. 
uh, and that may be very good because it helps you run fast on the like eat like ostriches and emus do, and then you know, it evolves into something special. Yeah, I'm not at all saying that. I, I just like this paradox. I mean, it doesn't mean, mean a lot in the end. I agree. Uh, <laughs> it, of course, we're not special. I mean, the, the real take-home message is that we aren't special at all. But if you want to feel happier, and you know, then this is the way. This is the only way to do it. But of course, it's true that. Uh, that nothing precludes, uh, as, uh, indeed, I assume that eventually there will be one, a, a evolutionary explanation of our ability to f- discover science as a byproduct of something that was selected for evolutionarily. I, I'm, you know, I, I'm signed up Darwinist. Don't worry. Uh, <laughs> uh, the question you have the lady on in the back, please. Sorry, I shouldn't sit down, should I? Really? I just uh, I always thought we were special because uh, even though we come from nothing like uh, all the rest of the world we're able to have you're able to give this lecture and I'm able to sit here and almost cry because I realize I'm going to die <laughs> and that's quite sad so I always thought that that's what makes us special that even though we come from nothing we can have this conversation right now what do you think? <laughs> Uh, I think once you get to a certain age, you'll be quite glad that you're going to die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to cry, especially if goes on. I would have wanted to die when I was your age. Uh, I, I, was, I was wondering that uh, uh, you, you paint a picture of human relativity in a way. Uh, how you look upon um, uh, the debate at the moment about fact-free uh, the fact-free, uh, the, the whole debate in, in the social media and the, the current political situation about fact-free news and also about actually there is a, a worldwide a, a march of scientists coming up, maybe you know about that, mm-hmm. uh, to also go against this whole idea that there is no evidence, there is no, uh, yeah, a little bit like what's, what's really true anymore. And the, the, do you think that uh, science and scientists have a task in this to show the world that science is important and that there are still objective facts? Absolutely. Uh, I think there was a, a terrible period. Of, I mean, the 60s were great in lots of respects. Uh, sex was good, the dope was good. But uh, a lot of the philosophy was really bad and it, and it spread around. Um, this terrible movement of postmodernism, which is really the precursor of this. Uh, post-truth view uh, that there aren't any standards. I mean, it, partly it was it was in response, at least in philosophy of science, to this phenomenon that I've talked to you about before, that, that, namely that that you can always accommodate any given phenomenon within any given theoretical framework if you're willing to make enough uh, assumptions of this ad hoc kind. And, and many people, philosophers and sociologists, said, oh, "There you go. We, that we've got no objective reason for preferring Copernicus over Ptolemy because." Anything that Copernicus can quote explain, so can so can Ptolemy. So there is no truth at the at the, at the theoretical level. Anything that you can explain in uh, in relativity theory, you can explain in, in Newtonian theory by giving yourself rigid rods that that uh, uh, contract in certain ways to make up for the relativistic effects that Einstein predicts. So they all infer from that there is no truth. There's no or there's no preference with respect to likely truth. At, at anything like the 
the theoretical level, and then they made it even worse by banging on about theory relatedness of observation and stuff, and that there wasn't even any truth at the observational level. Well, you bang on enough like that, then you'll get Trump. You know, it's, <laughs> it's a bad idea. Hi, uh, Patricia from Salba Nouvelle. I just have a question for you. So, you say that we're. I'm over here, <laughs> way in the back. Um, so, I guess my question is what would make anything special? Or what would make humans special? At, at what point <laughs> does anything become special? special in, a, in, in lots of senses, right? I mean, uh, uh, very special rock and roll going on tonight when I play rock and roll in the. Student centre, there's very special uh, cream cakes that you sometimes enjoy. It's there's lots of things. I'm not saying there's nothing special. I, you know, I didn't want to give the impression in respect to Goretti that I'm terminally depressed or anything. It's not true. Uh, there's lots of things that are special in life, but you know, they're not. It isn't. It's human to somehow have some, in principle, distinguished role. Of course, you know, there's lots of facts about humans that don't, that are, that are not facts about other. But other species, but looked at in the in the, in the broad, uh, in, in the way that, for example, people in the Middle Ages or some of a religious persuasion might think, there's nothing that that underpins in a scientific way any claims of, as it were, qualitative specialness. But I don't want to say there's there's no specialness in the world. There's a lot of specialness. Chuck Berry plays rock and roll. That's special. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Definitely. Yeah. Hi. Um, here. Hello. Hi, Lucas uh, from France. I was wondering, um, do you think that regarding to the proposed theory, there is a possibility that we discover uh, in a future that actually there is even more than galaxies and stars and uh, whatsoever? Sorry, can you say it again a um, slower? I, I, part of the reason why, uh, or, or in effect, of playing rock and roll since I was 16 is that <laughs> Yeah, I was wondering if uh, regarding to the proposed theory, there is theory. yeah, is there a possibility that one day um, we discover that there is even more than all those galaxies and stars that we, we just saw at the beginning of, the, of your presentation? I'm not sure how this relates to the theory. I mean, uh, we're, we're discovering new, new, new things about the universe all, all the time. Um, what people usually ask is, aren't there some, okay, maybe these phenomena are, like uh, stationary retrogressions don't refute Ptolemy's theory, but surely there are cases where you've got the genuine refutation, but that, 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 that's just not true. I mean, basically the structure is just that this is what Duhem showed. If you take any single scientific theory, let's say Newton's theory, Einstein's theory, any current cosmological theory, you never, de you never deduce consequences at the observational level or experimental level directly from that theory. You always have to add lots and lots of auxiliaries. Lots of, so you can't, for example, test Newton's theory against observations of where uh, planetary positions, because you can't see planetary positions. You look, you look through telescopes and you note the angle of elevation of the telescope when a certain characteristic spot of light is on it. So you need theories about the, about the telescope, you need theories about atmospheric refraction, because the light's being bent when it comes into the atmosphere. There's lots and lots of things that you, that you need, as well as Newton's theory that says, plus, of course, you need assumptions in Newton's theory about how many planets there are and all that stuff, but and then it's just a matter then of logic. That if you actually, if that's the structure, that you need all these extra assumptions. If if I now observe something that's that is inconsistent with that, then all I know is that whole thing is false. 
And it's provable that there are always ways of modifying the auxiliaries so that you get a new version that's still built on this central theory T, which gives you O dash, let's say, what we actually observe, which is uh, which entails uh, the O is false. So it, I, there's no prospect of any revival of Popper, I think. He just didn't quote Duane, but he never really liked to the, the Duane problem. This is really the structure. You don't. You know, he makes it seem because he takes simple examples like all swans are white uh, that you can directly uh, refute. Oh, that obviously, relative to a, the normal talk about what's, a, an obs- what's an observable entity, you can refute all swans are white. But science is not like that. It's a much when we're talking about claims about the deep structure, like Newton's theory that uh, everybody's attracted by. Uh, by every other with a force inverse the proportion of the square of the distance between them, then that's when you need these alternatives and you don't get the direct period falsification. Gentlemen in the back. Thank you. So last last night I read about a fact which science has revealed, which seems to cut against the idea that we're insignificant, and it was that human beings when compared to the Planck length, which I guess is one of the smallest lengths we've measured in the universe, and also compared to the entire size of the universe, we just so happen to rest in the middle as far as size is concerned on a logarithmic scale. And I'm just curious whether in your study you've come across other such facts that we've discovered through science which might just seem to cut against that if I'd had another uh, lecture I would have talked about the anthropic principle and Goldilocks zone that uh, that, uh, uh, Richard Dawkins likes to talk about Uh, there are and I I think did I mention uh, on passant that uh, that, uh, Collins and uh, Hawking have a view have a paper that's in called, at least in part, a universe made for us. And there are lots of arguments that say, I mean, more strongly than I think you were saying, that uh, based on something called the anthropic principle, uh, that purport to show that we are, in the end, very special because there are features of the universe that can, quote, only be explained on the basis of our existence. It's too long, but it's all... Uh, there was a very nice comment from in a review of a book by Barrow and Sickler, which, which is a sort of Bible of the anthropic principle, by Martin Gardner, who used to write the scientific puzzles column for the, for the Scientific American, because there are various versions. There's the weak anthropic principle called WAP. There's a the strong anthropic principle called SAT. There's the final anthropic principle called FAT. And Martin Gardner said they, they could all be called the completely ridiculous anthropic principle <laughs> crap. And that's, that's basically, I mean, if I've got time, I, I, it, it's all getting the logic the wrong way around. Basically, the only defensible one is the weak anthropic principle, and that just says any theory of the universe is going to be consistent with our existence. Well, yeah, it better be, because it better be consistent with the facts, and one of the facts is that we exist. Uh, but it, it's, it's reversing that arrow of explanation that just doesn't work, that, that tells us that we are somehow, that somehow play a special role. It, it, it's all, there's always logical skullduggery involved, or a priori assumptions that are completely untenable. I, I've written on anthropic principle. We can, but that's basically uh, what, what's going on. Yeah. Hi, uh, I have a question for you. So, do you really think we're still um, under a tight grip of uh, natural selection or evolution? Because, uh, for example, as I see it, 
what differentiates us from other animals is that we're, we are conscious of evolution. We are conscious that it is operating in the natural world, that um, we are dependent on our environment. And uh, don't, we th don't you think that we have gone a bit beyond that? You know, I feel like we can, we can manipulate our environment, we can change it, we can even just... You, I think we, have, we still have control over what happens to us. You know, I don't think... Yeah, it's a good, thank you, it's a good point. I, I mean, it's certainly, it, it's a very interesting issue, as far as animals have consciousness. Certainly just being conscious is not, uh, well, I say certainly, but most people would agree that just being conscious is not something that marks us out special. Uh, and there's a lot of you know, debate connecting with whether animals can feel pain and so on. Uh, and I think the consensus is that, that and they are conscious to some degree, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think whether, as it were, we can transcend Darwin's theory. Right? You can't obviously transcend, uh, it's not Newton's theory anymore, but let's assume it was, because Einstein's theory yields it as a good approximation. We can't you know, decide to not start accelerating towards the Earth when we're high up and free the falling body, that's not something. But we can decide. Some people would argue by reflecting on how much reproductive success we want to have, we can decide on our own reproductive success independently of any. Now, there are fancy explanations for saying, no, that's all positive plot that can be given to in an explanation. I, I don't know, it's an interesting question. But whether, I, I, I don't think that Darwinian theory is a fundamental theory, or it's not obviously a fundamental theory in the way that the theory of relativity or quantum theory is. Um, certainly, if, if, it, if it is true that we can, as it were, by reflecting on uh, the, the, the fact, the historical fact, then it wouldn't really be a theory, it'd just be a historical fact that this, you know, these processes of evolution have historically occurred under, uh, under these environments and uh, these selective pressures and so on. Uh, if we can reflect on that and then somehow not be bound by it, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting question. Yeah, um, I wanted to pick up on that last question um, and this idea of anthropocentrism. And so if humans are no longer the center of the universe, then that in some way debunks the anthropocentric myth of human beings. But also, when we think of the impact that humans have had on the planet, we think of things like the Anthropocene, and concerns about, I don't know, about space junk floating around the planet and how that might affect satellites or climate change, depletion of natural resources, and the fact that these are obstacles to be overcome by human beings for the human community. It's kind of a point that even if we have debunked the myth of that humans are at the center of the universe, we are still manipulating our world in such a way that is part of the anthropocentric narrative of human beings. So that there is a kind of, it's anthropocentrism of a different kind. I think, yeah, I, I could honestly agree with that. I think that's, that's right. I think my sort of vague hope, I suppose, is that people realise how, how much, stop saying, for example, you know, animals, when they mean non-human animals, uh, that, they, that they would have a 
more sensitive view of our part in, in nature if they realise that you know, it's not us and their nature. I mean, drives me right when people talk about unnatural events. What the hell is an unnatural event? Uh, so I, I, I'm completely on your side, lady over there. Yeah. Can we take one last just, question to lady? One, one question: Do you think that our specialness will be our undoing? Specialness will be our undoing. That's. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, if we're especially stupid, I think it'll be our undoing. Uh, if we keep on voting for people like Trump, then I think that will be our undoing. But uh, I, yeah, I'm still sort of vaguely optimistic that, that we. That we, by applying our very special scientific talents, we can, uh, we can overcome. Uh, you know, I'm certainly not a sort of back to nature person. You know, the lesson of history is that those on that so far not carry on, but those uh, problems that, that, that science has, and technology have posed have been solved by later by, by science. And, uh, so I'm not, you know. I once overheard at the height of the genetic engineer food stuff, somebody in the supermarket said, oh, we don't want anything, we don't want anything with any of genes in it. So, you know, I, 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 I'm not sort of massively green in this sort of respect. I think science is one thing on hold, and we should, we should use it properly rather than trying to turn our backs on it. That's a very nice book by Dick Tavern called March of Unreason, but he knows that very well. Okay, time's up. Let's thank John for his time.